you know, open your, your Bible app to the book of James than it is to say open your Bibles to the book of James. Either way, as long as you got God's Word. I, I've been thinking about this, though. It's kind of interesting to me that uh, during the tribulation when, when Satan's trying to punish people for worshiping, it's going to be a lot harder to keep them from finding God's Word than it used to be because uh, it's not just in printed form anymore. It's, it's electronic form, and it's everywhere. Uh, but we're going to look at the, uh, the book of James in... I was actually, we finished the book of Habakkuk last week, which I marveled that we did that in five sermons, because uh, you know it normally takes, I think, Second Peter took me 28 sermons to go through, and so usually it's a lot more detailed, but it was a short book, and we got through it. Uh, James is a short book. I don't anticipate getting it done in five sermons, because it's one of my favorite books to preach from. Uh, I had thought to go to the book of Micah, just because I enjoy preaching through books of the Bible, and I've been looking at that book recently, and I thought, you know, we really need to go through that. But a lot of judgment in Micah, and I thought, well, we just had a lot of judgment in Habakkuk. Let's take a break from judgment. And, uh, and Judy pointed out it had been a long time since I preached from James, and uh, I didn't realize how long it had been because I've been using PowerPoint slides for years, and there are no PowerPoint slides on James. So I've, I know I've preached on it here, but it's probably been 11, 12 years ago. So at any rate, uh, I'm looking forward to, to this because it is probably one of my favorite books. Now, let me tell you a little bit about the book before we get into it because I think it's good to have an introduction. One thing is it's, it's, the book has been contested in a lot of ways over a lot of time. Uh, the Muratorian canon uh, contains a lot of scriptures, but does not contain the book of Hebrews, James, First or Second Peter, and that dates back to the second century. And of course, it is a fragment, which means there's more of the uh, Muratorian canon that probably did exist, but its uh, omission of these books is is significant. Uh, but it has been consistent in all the canon, and by canon I mean what is accepted as accepted scripture. And of course there was a council of Trent which once and for all decided what was in the scriptural canon, and Bible scholars examined very carefully to see what was in the canon and what was not in the canon. In other words, if there was anything in a book that uh, was against well-established scriptures elsewhere, then it didn't make it in the canon. So, for example, you have probably at some time in your life have seen a, a Bible with something added to it called the Apocrypha, okay? Uh, apocryphal means fiction, okay? And so, for example, one of the books in the Apocrypha is Bell and the Dragon. Uh, there's another, uh, there's 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th Maccabees, which actually tells a little bit of the history of what happened in the 400 years between the Old Testament and New Testament. So there are some things of historical value, but there's also a lot of really uh, preposterous stories in, that are in there. And the people who compile the Apocrypha, who basically what happened is they took the Old Testament, they translated it from Hebrew to Greek, that, that Greek translation translation of the Old Testament became known as the Septuagint. It's called the Septuagint because supposedly 70 Bible uh, students that could translate from Hebrew to Greek made that translation. And so you have these, this translation of the Old Testament into Greek, which became the language of the modern world. And uh, when they did that, they decided, hey, let's add these other books over here too. But they made a statement that these were not for theological study, but for you know, uh, understanding historical context or understanding other things, but they weren't meant to be preached from as scriptures. But of course, what happened is Roman Catholics preached sermons from them. I, I remember going to the funeral of a Baptist lady whose daughter was a Catholic, and when the lady died, she had her Catholic priest preach the funeral, and he preached the whole book from the Apocrypha. And I, I thought, I, I knew that lady well enough to know she was probably rolling over in her grave at the time to have the Apocrypha as the subject or, or book. Now, if you use the word Apocrypha around somebody that goes to the Greek Orthodox Church or goes to the Roman Catholic Church, they'll very quickly correct you and say it's called the Deuterocanon, which means the second canon. They're trying to make it sound more official by adding the word canon after it, but it's just not part of Scripture. We have 66 books in the Bible that are Scripture, the 39 books in the Old Testament have always been considered part of Scripture because they were in the Jewish uh, uh, Scriptures. And then the, in the 27 books that we have in the New Testament, they're written by uh, apostles primarily, uh, and they have very significant uh, ties to Jesus, and, and they've all been verified as being part of the Gospel. So, But the Muratorian canon didn't have it. But James has always been considered since about the 
fourth and fifth century, which would be the 300s to 400s, uh, as, as being in the canon. Now, Martin Luther didn't like this book. Uh, he, he didn't like it. Uh, and, uh, Brother Dennis was talking about Martin Luther a while ago. He, he opposed the book. And we'll, uh, we'll talk about what he called it in a minute. But, uh, this is a general epistle. Now, a lot of the epistles, like the epistles to the Colossians, uh, epistles to the Ephesians, the Galatians, are written to a specific church in a specific locality. This is what's called a general epistle, or some people will call it an, an encyclical. Basically, it's meant to be distributed among Christians everywhere. And so James was this kind of book. And James was the leader of the church at Jerusalem. And so it was with some authority that he pens a book that he wants all Christians everywhere to be able to consume. And we'll talk more specifically about the audience here in a minute. Now Martin Luther, as I said, had problems with this. He, he, called, he called the book of James a right strawy epistle. Uh, and in other words, it's, it's like it's straw. And the reason he objected to it is that he misinterpreted the book as thinking that James told us you have to work for your salvation. Well, of course, that would seem to go against what Paul told us, that salvation is by grace and it's not by works of righteousness as we have done, but according to his mercy that he saved us by the washing of the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. And it's not by uh, works, but it's by faith that you're saved by grace, not by works, uh, so that that God gets all the glory for our salvation. And the two seem to contradict, but, but they don't really contradict. And we'll speak of the difference in a moment between uh, Paul and, and James' view of Scripture. Now, I love this particular quote by Ronald Blue. He says, There are enough needles in this haystack to prick the conscience of every dull, defeated, and degenerated Christian in the world. Here is a right stirring epistle. He's, he's playing a pun on Martin Luther's words. It's a right stirring epistle designed to exhort and encourage, to challenge and to convict, to rebuke and to revive, to describe practical holiness and drive believers toward the goal of a faith that works. James is severely ethical and refreshingly practical. And that's a great description of, of the book of James. So who is the author of this book? Well, the New Testament mentions four different people named James. We'll go through them real quick. There's the son of Zebedee, and who's the brother of, of John. Uh, we know from Acts chapter 12 and verse 2, he was martyred under the reign of Herod Agrippa. You remember he was, uh, he was thrown from the top of the temple. He hit the ground. He was uh, broken bones. He's laying there, and people came up and, and busted in his head with a fuller's club. And that's how he was uh, martyred. He's one of the first, the first martyr of the New Testament, basically, is, is this James. So that happened too early for him to have been the author of the book. Then we have James, the son of Alphaeus, and uh, he, he's basically suggested, some, the Roman Catholics wanted to believe that, that uh, Mary stayed a virgin forever. She's the perpetual virgin. So when they say the virgin Mary, they, they believe she, she always was a virgin, which is a problem because the scripture tells us that Mary came with some of her other children and the disciples came in and told Jesus, uh, Master, your, your mother and your brothers are here. And, he, and then he asked the question, well, who are my mother and brothers? And then he talks about, you're my family in the kingdom of God. I'm sure he still went out and paid uh, respectful attention to his mother. He was always respectful toward her. But she didn't remain a virgin. She did have other children. Well, some people have suggested that this James is, is a cousin of Jesus Christ as the son of Alphaeus. And that they would say that the Greek word for brother, Adolfoi, also can mean cousins. That actually is twisting scripture. It's uh, not taking the literal interpretation of the words. And we've got to be careful when we start saying, well, this word really means that. No, let's, let's go and see what the word really means and go back to that. Then there was uh, James, the father of Judas, not Judas Iscariot, but the other Judas. There was that James, but he's not mentioned anywhere else in scripture. He was not uh, widely known. He wasn't greatly influential in the early church, so that's not going to be it. So it leaves us with one logical choice, and that this is the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's interesting that in Galatians uh, 1.19, Paul is talking about uh, he saw this vision of Christ out in the desert. And, you know, this is where he basically Christ tells him, you know, Saul, Saul, why persecutest me? It's hard for you to kick against the pricks. And once he became converted, the Bible says he went into Arabia and he spent three years in the desert having one-on-one fellowship with Jesus Christ. 
Paul went to the most exclusive seminary of all time, which is three years in the desert seeing the risen, resurrected Savior. And that's why the resurrection and the glory of God is prominent throughout his epistles. And then he says, he says, then 14 years afterwards, he says, I went up again to Jerusalem and I took uh, Barnabas and Silas with me also. And he says, but he says, but other of the apostles saw I none save the Lord's brethren. And, and then he mentions in Galatians 1.19 specifically, he says, but I did not see others of the apostles except James, the brother of the Lord. So it's commonly known that this James uh, came from Mary, and that's uh, Joseph and Mary's child, uh, and that uh, this is, uh, or maybe Mary remarried after Joseph died, but anyway, it's Mary's child. And so we see that he's the, we know from the book of Acts, he's the leader of the church at Jerusalem. Now this is probably the earliest book in your New Testament. Just as in the Old Testament, Job is the book that's chronologically written before any other book. It was recorded before even the five books of Moses were. Well, in the New Testament, James is that earliest book. And uh, Flavius Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, it records that James was martyred in 62 AD. So that means that the epistle had to be written prior to that date. There's no mention of the Council of Jerusalem having happened, which was in A.D. 49, which means, and, and James took an active role in that. So it's likely that this is written somewhere between 45 and 48 A.D., making it the earliest book of the New Testament. Uh, and it's, so a lot of people said, well, James was counteract, trying to counteract Paul's teaching because a lot of people were saying salvation is just by grace and therefore all you had to do is ask Jesus to be your Savior and you're, you're saved, boom, and after that you can do anything you want. Because there were some people that took Paul's gospel and they converted it to libel. In other words, it's kind of, okay, I'll go through the motions. I ask Jesus as my Savior. Now I can go out and drink and party and do whatever I want to because it doesn't make a difference. Uh, and there is a different focus between uh, James and Paul, but this was written too early. Uh, it's written before Paul's writing, so it certainly wasn't against uh, Paul's doctrine. Now, to whom was the book written? Well, it says it's written to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, uh, and uh, the word actually means the diaspora or the dispersion. We'll talk more about what that means in a moment. But the, it's, it's a Jewish audience. It has a Jewish flavor. And you're going to see a lot of that in this book. So it has, it sounds a lot, I call James the Proverbs of the New Testament because it's very practical, just like Proverbs is. Um, and so look at some of the things he talks about that are terms that Jews would understand. He mentions the first fruits in chapter 1, verse 18. He mentions the meeting place or synagogue. He mentions our ancestor Abraham. He certainly wouldn't say that to a Gentile audience. Uh, he talks about hell and he talks about the Lord Almighty. In other words, he's using... Uh, the terms for God that were used in the Old Testament Jewish terms. He talks about the latter and, and spring rains. Uh, so it's a Jewish constituently. It's, uh, it demonstrates, uh, you know, he uses a very careful vocabulary. And he even, when he says in this first verse, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting, the word greeting is not common for books written to Hebrews. Uh, because normally you would say uh, shalom. And you, so that's why Paul begins most of his letters with grace and peace be unto you. Uh, because you've got to have grace before you have peace. But he just says greeting, which is a Greek word. It's, it's basically a, a normal greeting that you would say to someone on the street like today. If you go down to Texas A&M University and you're walking down the sidewalk and you see someone from the core, you say howdy because they all say howdy there. And I went to A&M long enough, I still say howdy all the time rather than hi or hello. Uh, just kind of in, in, my, in my blood. But basically, this is written to a Hebrew audience. Now, we need to talk about James versus Paul just a little bit. Uh, first of all, we do know from Scripture in Acts 15, 13, Acts 21, 18, that Paul recognized James' ministry and vice versa uh, at the Council of Jerusalem, which would have been Acts 15. Uh, they heard Paul and Barnabas share about why they were sharing the gospel with the Gentiles. And remember, there were a bunch of Jews in Jerusalem who said, oh, listen, if they want to be Christians, they have to be circumcised first. And then James listened to all this, and they, they had this meeting, and basically the leaders at Church of Jerusalem had a decision to make. And then James stands up and speaks, and he basically he is the chief pastor of the Church at Jerusalem, and he says, Brethren, my judgment is this. And he says, they don't have to be circumcised, but we would ask just out of courtesy to their Jewish brethren that they don't uh, eat uh, blood animals that have been strangled in, uh, with their blood as they don't 
you don't eat blood with the with the uh, things, and also you know that there's there's a couple other things. There's basically a couple of things I want you to do to not offend your Jewish brethren. But he says, other than that, you don't have to be circumcised. So James had respect for the ministry of Paul and Barnabas in the same way Paul had respect for for James, in that he mentions them in the book of Galatians, and he held them in high uh, high respect. And so uh, they, they were not enemies. They didn't serve on opposite sides. But they had a different focus. Paul wrote about how faith changes our hearts when we receive Jesus Christ from God's perspective. Now, I can stand up here today and you can probably notice a lot of things about me. You can notice uh, how colorful my tie is and where the microphone is and whether or not my hair is combed and whether or not I shaved this morning before I left the house. And you can see a lot of things. One thing none of you out there can see is my heart. Only God sees the heart. And when we're saved, the moment we confess our sins, we ask Jesus to forgive us of our sins, and we receive Him as our Lord and Savior, there is a change that takes place in our heart, and God sees it at that moment, and He knows that we are His child. But nobody else can see what happens in the heart. Because let's face it, uh, there have been actors that have portrayed Christians in movies that weren't real Christians themselves. You can act a part. But James takes a slightly different take on it. He's not contradicting Paul. Paul is right in saying that salvation is strictly by grace and it's something God sees in our heart. But James says, now if you're really saved, it ought to be evident to men too. But since men can't see your heart, what can they see? Your works. Isn't that something Jesus said? Didn't Jesus said? You shall know them by their what? Their fruits. You'll know them by their works. The other thing he said, all men shall know that you're my disciples by what? Your love for one another. So people have to look, not at our hearts because they can't see that, but is it real that we have this faith? And I've shared with you many of you the story that uh, in a church that I pastored in, in South Dallas years ago, uh, we had these, th- these, I don't know if you remember, uh, Brother Dennis probably remembers because he's, he was mentioning something that happened 40 or 50 years ago, and I thought, I, was, I remember that too. You know, I remember the 60s and the 70s. But we used to have these lights in school. It was a lot of concentric circles, each smaller, and then this big 300-watt incandescent bulb in the middle, and you turn the lights on, you heated up a classroom pretty quickly. Uh, and we had those lights, and I thought, man, that's killing the church on their electric bill. So I went down to Lowe's. I bought a bunch of fluorescent lights. I got out the ladder. I went and turned the switch off at the wall. Uh, because not being an electrician, I didn't understand why you, if you had to switch off of the wall, there's not supposed to be any juice in the ceiling. So I climb up on the metal ladder and I take down the light fixture. And as I'm hooking up the lights to the, the fluorescent light, I discovered that even with the light switch off, there can be hot wires in the ceiling. I now know why you go to the circuit breaker box. Because what happened when I grabbed hold of that 126 volts of electricity is it changed my behavior. Uh, I came off the ladder rather quickly. Uh, I said Albuquerque, which uh, from early on has been my substitute for a curse word. If you really get me upset, you'll hear me say Albuquerque. And so I shouted Albuquerque, came off the ladder. It changed my behavior. And, and James would say, if, if 126 volts of electricity can change your behavior, how can you possibly receive the King of Kings and Lord of Lords in your heart and it not change the way you live? In other words, James is saying God sees you justified before Him in your heart by faith as Paul taught, but how are others going to know we're Christians? They need to see our works because real faith lives it out in daily life. And that's what the book of James is about. James is going to give us, in the five chapters that we have, a series of situations in which we can show real Christian love if we are genuinely born again. And so he's going to cover those situations. So men see our faith by our works. So the true seed of saving faith is verified by tangible fruit. The seed of faith is what God plants in our hearts, but how is it verified? By our, the fruit of living. And so in other words, James would simply say real faith works. Now, something interesting about this book that I don't think is true of any other book in the New Testament, because like, for example, the epistles of Paul, uh, you know, the gospel show us Christ, Acts gives us the history of the early church, and and the epistles, especially Paul's epistles, explain Christ to us. We see Christ in the Gospels. It's explained to us in the epistles. 
But Paul spends a lot of time, as does the writer of Hebrews, in explaining Christ. Now, the book of Revelation, that's a whole different thing we'll save for later. But James wants you to practice out your Christian faith. So this book has, it's almost more like a lecture and a sermon, but literally almost, there's, there's 54 imperative verbs out of 108 verses. That means that every two verses, there's at least one command. This is a highly imperative book. It's a book that says you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this. Because why? There's the pastor of the church at Jerusalem writing all the Christians who would listen to him and says you need to do this to show your faith. You need to do this to show your faith. If your faith is real, you need to do this to show your faith and to show your love for Jesus Christ. Nowhere is he saying you have to do any of those things to be saved. He's saying if you are saved, you need to be doing this. And it's 54 imperatives out of 108 verses. So this is a, a pretty impressive thing because it's probably the most imperative uh, book in terms of imperative verbs of all of them. And it's also a lot of imagery in, in James. He, he uses uh, illustrations from uh, nature and illustrations from farm life. He, he refers often to the Sermon on the Mount in this book. Uh, the, ser- the sentences are short and simple. This is uh, of the, the many New Testament books I've translated over the years. This is one of the easier books to translate, uh, and unlike the book of Hebrews, which is probably the hardest of the books to translate. Uh, but the sentences are short, simple, direct. He has a lot of metaphors. He has a lot of uh, poetic imagination. And uh, there are probably more figures of speech like similes and analogies and imagery from nature in the book of James than all the other epistles combined. Uh, the, you know, the other languages tend to be more direct, and James uses a lot of imagery. There's exhortations, there's rhetorical questions, there's illustrations from everyday life, and they add a lot of spice to the book. Now, the book also has a lot of structure. I think James would have been a, a preacher I would have enjoyed hearing because I like structure uh, when I'm hearing God's truth taught. And one of the things he does is he links clauses and phrases together by repeating a word. So, for example, in chap- just in chapter 1, uh, verse 3, he talks about perseverance, and then in verse 4, he repeats perseverance. Then uh, he says, not lacking anything in verse 4. He says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth liberty to all men, and upbraideth not. So in verse 4, he says, not lacking anything. And then in verse 5, he says, if any of you lacks. He repeats that little key word of lack. And then uh, he says, he should ask of God. And then he says, and when he asks, he must ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that doubteth is like a wave of the sea, driven to and fro uh, by the wind. And so he repeats ask twice. And then he says, he must not doubt in verse 6. And then he he says, and if you doubt, this is the thing. So you constantly see this idea of uh, a word being repeated to kind of tie verses together. A lot of structure to this book. It's also a book that's rich in Old Testament truths. He refers to Abraham, Rahab, Job, Elijah, to the law and the Ten Commandments. Uh, and then he, he includes allusions to passages in 21 of the 39 Old Testament books. That's a lot of references to the Old Testament. He was an Old Testament scholar. He quotes from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He quotes from Joshua, quotes from 1 Kings, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and seven out of the 12 minor prophets. So a lot of Old Testament in this book, and, and, uh, but he refers to Scripture. Um, and I know you probably can't see that slide too well, and I apologize for that. But it's just a book rich in nature, and I just wanted to show you if you line up those columns. Uh, he refers a lot to nature. Uh, he talks about the wave of the sea, tossed by the wind, a wildflower. The sun burns the scorching heat, the plant blossom falls, the heavenly light, shifting shadows, first fruits, uh, bits in the mouth of horses, ships driven by a strong wind, a great forest set on fire, a deadly poison, fresh water, salt water, a uh, fig tree, uh, and a grapevine, uh, sowing in peace, and uh, talking about our life is like a mist that appears for a little while, vanishes away, moths eating your clothes, gold and silver uh, disappear. So he uses a lot, and I only read some of those things there. Uh, but at any rate, and you can pull up the sermon notes on the, the internet later tonight and, and see that whole list for yourself. But he uses a lot of, of references to nature. Not only that, but he makes a lot of references to the Sermon on the Mount. Now, one thing you're going to find out about James is apparently he was not a believer for a long time uh, because the Bible tells us that Jesus' own brothers didn't believe him. And it's interesting to me that when Jesus rises from the dead, that pretty much the first person he goes and sees is his brother James. 
And I'll, I'll give you the scripture for that in a moment. But he goes and sees his brother James, I think, because he, he knew that James had been a hard sell during his life. And he wanted to make sure that James got that. But you see there on the left-hand column are a bunch of references from the book of James, and they all have corresponding scriptures in the Sermon on the Mount. So one thing that seems apparent to me, James listened to that Sermon on the Mount, and he remembered it, and he makes frequent references to it in the book of James. So as we go through the book of James, I'll try to point out those references to the Sermon on the Mount because it was a great influence on him. Now, what is the theme of this book? It is that real saving faith has to be evident to others by a change in our conduct and in our lives. And that love for Christ can be expressed in very practical ways that men can see. And that gives them evidence to know that faith is real. And, and a, kind of an outline for the book might be this last point, that we achieve spiritual maturity through a confident stand, compassionate service, careful speech, contrite submission, and concern sharing. And we're going to be going through each of those points, beginning with the first one today. Now, I think there's a story in history that James would have liked. Uh, there's a story told about Francis of Assisi. And, of course, he's one of those people that has been canonized by the Roman Catholic Church as having been a saint. But Francis of Assisi did some good things. Now, you'll know that my one big gripe with Francis of Assisi is his first uh, Christmas pageant he put on. And uh, so... Uh, because the area where he put it on didn't have a lot of stone. They built a manger out of wood when the real manger was out of stone. You've heard me teach at Christmas about all the wrong traditions we've accepted. Uh, and then also, uh, the pageant wasn't long enough to, co to convey the fact that the wise men didn't come to the manger. The Bible says they came to a house and that Jesus was a young child. The Greek word technos means a child of about two or three years old. So the shepherds showed up at the manger, but there's no wise men at the manger, and the Bible tells us that. And when the shepherds showed up, they found an infant. When the wise men showed up, they found a child. And Scripture tells us that. But people, we, we basically, Francis of Assisi, to save time in the play, he just has the, the wise men show up at the manger. Okay, So unfortunately, due to a few things like that, there was some error that got taught to Christians just by a simple thing as a Christmas play. But Francis of Assisi did a lot of good things as well. And there's a story that he once invited a young apprentice to go to a nearby uh, city to preach to the people there. And this guy says, oh, I would like to watch Francis of Assisi preach. I'd like to learn from him. And so he jumped at the chance and they went to a nearby village so that he could hear Francis of Assisi teach. Well, first on the way, they stopped at, at a butcher shop and talked to the butcher. And then they went into a cobbler shop and talked to the cobbler who was repairing shoes. And then they went to the house of a woman who recently had buried her husband. And they comforted her. And then after uh, a stop at, at a school to stop to chat with a teacher, uh, they continued through the morning going other places. And after some time, Francis of Assisi said, it's time for us to go home, back, back to the abbey, as it were. He says, we need to go back. And, and the, the student said, well, I don't understand. We, we came to preach. We haven't preached a sermon. And Francis of Assisi replied, well, haven't we Preached a sermon. People have watched us and listened to us, responded to us. Every word we have spoken, every deed we have done has been a sermon. We have preached all morning. I think James would have liked that story about Francis of Assisi. It kind of reminds you of that poem by Edgar Guest that says, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. I'd rather one walk with me than merely show the way. For the eyes of better pupil and more willing than the ear. Find counsel is confusing, but example is always clear. And the best of all the teachers are to men who live their creeds. For to see the good in action is what everybody needs. I can soon learn how to do it if you let me see it done. I can watch your hands in action, but your lips too fast may run. Uh, and the, the poem goes on. I actually found out there was a whole stanza I hadn't even memorized. I quoted from it last week. Somebody came up and said, where'd you get that? It's, called, it's a poem by Edgar Guest. And uh, it's called A Sermon We See is the name of the poem. So if you get a chance, Google that and look it up. It's a great poem. I think, I think James would have really liked that. Now, Max Lucado, commenting on the book of James, makes an interesting statement. He says, as far as James was concerned... I love this phrase. Christianity was more action than Monday than worship on Sunday. Wow, I like that. That's, that's, that's worthy of quoting right there. 
Uh, and remember, what did James say in James 2.14? My brothers and sisters, if people say they have faith but do nothing, their faith is worth nothing. Can faith like that save them? In other words, James isn't saying you're saved by your works, but he's saying if you don't have works, then what you, what you say you have as faith isn't worth anything because real faith changes us. Real faith shows out in our behavior. And he also says... His message is bare-knuckled, his style is bare-boned, talk is cheap, he argues, service is invaluable. And here's another phrase worth bold printing. It's not that works save the Christian, but works mark the Christian. I think that's a good way of putting it. We're not saved by our works, but our works show others that we're the real deal. Uh, I told you a story a number of years ago. Of course, I've, I've worked in information technology for since 1984, and... Uh, number of years ago, it's been uh, actually 20 years ago, this September will be 21 years ago that I was hired into my current job. And uh, when I got hired, there was a man in uh, Michigan named Chris. He got hired at the same time I did. And um, my boss was up uh, finishing up the paperwork when he hired Chris. And, and he said to Chris, he said, yeah, I just hired this Baptist preacher down in Texas you know, as a software engineer. And, and uh, it was a pre-sales software engineer. And what pre-sales software engineers did, and I don't do that same thing anymore, but we would go out with salespeople and listen to the needs of a customer. We'd design a software solution that would solve their networking problems or their computer systems problems or their business problems. And so I did that for a lot of years. The problem is, is that a lot of times salespeople want to sell features in the software that don't exist yet. Uh, they want to get a sale, and they, they tell the customer, oh, yeah, we can do that, we can do that. And one of my jobs has always been to rein in the salespeople, make sure they didn't tell a lie. You know, Oh, well, no, we can't quite do that, but here's what we can do, and make sure that they got the correct technical information. Anyway, this guy named Chris told me later that when he heard that a Baptist preacher had been hired, he said, oh, well, he's going to have to lie to get a deal someday. And so he watched me for years, and he frequently came to Dallas and was in meetings, and he watched my demeanor. So one time he was in Dallas, he calls me up and says, you know, can I take you out to dinner tonight? I said, well, that'd be my honor. I'd love to go. So we, we went to an Engelbert Humperdinck's restaurant, and uh, I like him because they have stuffed jalapenos, and that's the mark of any good restaurant is that they have stuffed jalapenos. And uh, so we're eating there, and uh, uh, he, he told me, he says, he says, I've watched you for years, and I've waited for you to compromise your integrity, and you didn't. He says, you are the reason I became a Christian, just from watching. So we preach a sermon by our behavior. James would say, we need to preach better sermons. And that's why there's 54 imperatives out of 108 verses, every other verse, literally. So uh, one other thing St. Francis of Assisi is famous for saying, he says, preach without ceasing. If you must, use words. Obviously, I use a lot of words when I preach, but we're all preaching all the time. And he says, preach without ceasing if you have to use words. Now, Max Lucado has some interesting comments. He says, when a potter bakes a pot, he checks its solidity by pulling it out of the oven and thumping it. If it sings, it's ready. If it thuds, it's placed back in the oven. The character of a person is also checked by thumping. Have you been thumped lately? Late night phone calls, grouchy teacher, grumpy moms, burnt meals, flat tires. You've got to be kidding deadlines. I have a lot of those. Those are thumps. Thumps are those irritating inconveniences that trigger the worst in us. They catch us off guard, flat-footed. They aren't big enough to be crises, but if you get enough of them, watch out. Traffic jams, long lines, empty mailboxes, dirty clothes on the floor. Thump, thump, thump. How do I respond? Do I sing or do I thud? Jesus said that out of the nature of the heart a man speaks, there's nothing like a good thump to reveal the nature of a heart. The true character of a person is seen not in momentary heroics, but in the thump-packed humdrum of day-to-day -day living. I like that. Well, let's get into James 1.1. That's, and normally I don't, I start with a scripture and we go, but I wanted to give you some introductory background. First of all, let me talk about who this is written to, and then let's look at what James says about himself. To the twelve tribes scattered abroad. 
Uh, literally in the Greek, it's to the 12 tribes in the diaspora or the diaspora. Uh, it's a, a word that would be uh, called a dispersion. It technically usually refers to Jews living outside the nation of Palestine. And the dispersal of Jews was important for Christianity because everywhere there were Jews, there were synagogues. And synagogues were some of the first places that Christian preachers started at because they would open the scriptures and they would explain from the Old Testament the gospel. Now, very often they got escorted out of the synagogues, but they usually started the ministry there. Paul, whenever he went to a new locality, always first went to the synagogue to preach to the Jews first, and then he would preach to the Gentiles in, in the area. But it was a great place to make a beginning for the gospel. Also, where there were Jews, there was a foundational knowledge of the Old Testament. So there were several different ways that Jews left the Promised Land. So in about 725 B.C., as I remember, or 725 or 726, right in there, um, the, the, this is one of those dates the pastor can call off the top of his head. But Assyrians were carried away, the people of the northern kingdom, that's the ten northern tribes, so everybody in Israel other than Judah and, and Benjamin, carried them away in, in about that time. And then in 580 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the Babylonians, uh, captured uh, Judah and, and Benjamin and tribes and carried away a lot of the Jews to live in, in Babylon. And interestingly enough, uh, the Jews made bad captives. Uh, they made bad captives because they refused to give up their Jewish law and they refused to give up their, their time off on Saturdays to worship the Lord and they refused to, to violate the, their uh, religious laws and their ceremonial laws. So because they refused to do that, everybody that captured them eventually just had to put up with them. And so actually in Babylon, Jews thrived. They actually built a, a, a rabbi training facility while they were in Babylon. They wrote commentaries. Uh, the largest commentary on the Jewish scriptures written by rabbis was written while they were in captivity in Babylon, interestingly enough. Uh, so they, this Jewish scholarship would continue to thrive. Then Pompey, many, many years later in 63 B.C., conquered Jerusalem and he took a bunch of Jews back to Rome. And once again, they made bad captives and, and uh, the Romans had to let them go ahead and have their synagogues and their meetings and had to let them go ahead and adhere to Jewish law uh, as, as long as it didn't conflict with Roman law. And even then, they still kept to the Jewish law. Uh, and then there were a lot of Jews that over time just left Palestine for... Uh, more profitable lands. Uh, for example, in Alexandria, this is hard to imagine because I, I don't know, I think the current population of Dallas is two point something or other million people. Alexandria had a million Jews in it at the time of Christ. A million Jews. And that's kind of mind boggling to me. Uh, they, built, uh, they built their own Jewish seminaries in Alexandria. Uh, there was a, a temple erected in Egypt in a place called Leontopolis. Uh, where they basically had a temple that replicated the functions that the Jerusalem temple would have had. They went to Syria, primarily in Antioch and Damascus. Uh, in Damascus, later, there were more than 100,000 Jews slaughtered there when persecution came against the Jews. But in Antioch, a lot of those Jews were, became Christians, and the Bible says they were first, we were first called Christians, where? At Antioch. That's where we got the title that we bear proudly to this day, is Antioch. Uh, they'll go there. They went to North Africa, had a huge presence in North Africa, had a huge presence in Asia Minor, and I've got lots of detailed stuff about that I don't have time to cover now. But also, you notice here on this map, this is between 1000 and 1500 AD. These are all the different times that large groups of Jews moved from one area of the world to another area of the world. So this continues constantly. Basically, Jews were everywhere. Uh, Strabo, who was a Greek geographer, wrote, It is hard to find a spot in the whole world that's not occupied and dominated by the Jews. By the way, if you go look at a list of Nobel Prize winners, ever since the Nobel Prize uh, started being issued, you will discover that about 74% of all Nobel Prize winners were Jewish. That's where the innovation has come from. God has blessed those people. Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, wrote, There's no city, no tribe, whether Greek or barbarian, in which Jewish law and Jewish customs have not taken root. And that tells you how broad this was. Uh, the Sibylline oracles written about 140 B.C. said that every land and every sea is filled with the Jews. And again, this is one of those things that uh, I have a whole lot more 
uh, notes on that we don't have time for. But just suffice it to say, this dispersion of Jews is a great gift to Christianity. Because these are people that knew the Old Testament. They could receive the gospel easily because they had the background. And then they were places from which the gospel spread out to the entire world. So who are the recipients? Well, there's several theories. One is, well, it's just all the Jews outside Palestine. That's actually probably too wide for a distribution of a letter like this book of James is. It could be that in the early church... Uh, you remember what the early church was like in the book of Acts, right? It says they met uh, for the, the, the explaining or the preaching of the word. They met to pray. They met to, uh, to, to fellowship together. They had meals together. And basically it sounds like any normal Sunday at our church because we, we hear the word of God, we sing. And then ex- until our, the water pipes busted a few weeks ago, we met every Sunday for, for lunch after church. And we should get back to that in a couple, of three weeks from now. Um, but at any rate, that was, that was what the church was focused on. Now, what happened around 200, 300 A.D. is they started getting this idea that there was a big difference between the clergy and the laity. And the Romans had persecuted Christianity for a long time, and then along comes Constantine, and he declares Christianity to be the official religion of the Romans, and he decides in the sign of the cross, go forth and conquer, and you have the, the crusades that start, and uh, basically using the flag in the name of Christ to go and conquer other people, and a lot of that wasn't, certainly wasn't Christian, uh, but the problem was, is they got this idea that there was an official government-approved clergy. And so, basically, you have the emperor of Rome as the head of state, but then you have a pope who is the head of the Christian church. Now, I believe this is what the book of Revelation calls the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Nicolaitans means people conquerors. It's an unscriptural idea to say that there is a clergy who is above the laity. Uh, the reality is, is that we are all kings and priests to our God. That's what it says in First Peter. We're all part of the ministry. Uh, we're all supposed to be part of the ministry. Now, you may call someone a pastor. You may call someone an elder. You may call someone a deacon. But the reality is we're all supposed to be serving Christ. That doesn't change. We're all kings and priests. Now, is there an authority within a church? Yes, the Bible tells us in Hebrews 13, obey them that have the rule over you as they must give an account for your souls. Pastors are held accountable with whether or not they preached you the whole counsel of God and if they treated the word the way it deserved to be treated. If they were good students and they told you the truth and they didn't just give you their own opinions all the time. If they based things from Scripture. Uh, But what happened is in the early church, there was a lot of, criticism from Jews as to, well, wait a minute, you tell us all this Christian stuff, where is that in the Old Testament? And a lot of times they couldn't find what they needed to support themselves in the Old Testament, so they said, you know what, the Old Testament is an allegory. You have to interpret it in allegory. So they would take every story in the Old Testament, and there are some allegorical stories there, but let's, for example, take the story of uh, J.L., who uh, nails an enemy commander's head to the ground with a tent peg. They would find some way to spiritualize that into a story about the church. Seriously. Was Cicero was the name of the general. Uh, they would take jail, nailing Cicero's head to the, the floor, and they'd find a way to spiritualize that as a story about the church. And basically Israel in the Old Testament becomes the church. Every, every reference to Israel really talks about the church. Now, the thing is, that's not good Bible hermeneutics. And out of the church fathers, there were people like Augustine and Origen and others that were really terrible at this. And then there was a few, there were two of the early church fathers in particular, and the most prominent of which was John Chrysostom, who told the other church fathers, you can't allegorize the Old Testament. You need to learn how to do proper scriptural interpretation. You need to find out what the writers meant. You need to interpret correctly. And you need to preach the facts of scripture and not make stories out of everything just to justify your viewpoint. And what happened was about the 80% of the early church fathers went down this path of making everything allegorical. And they led Christianity into what I call the dark ages that lasted until probably... 17, 1800 A.D., when there began to be this revival of, no, we need to really interpret scriptures. And they're, they're, 
every Christian is a part of the ministry. And it's not, we're not all under the domains of, of priests that have to wear high pointy hats on their heads. Uh, so this is an important concept. Well, certainly this isn't what is meant uh, by the dispersion. So there's one thing left, and that is Christians outside Palestine. These are Jewish Christians who have left Jerusalem, and the Jewish pastor of the church at Jerusalem is writing them a letter to tell them how they need to show the love of Christ and how they need to act. And James would have been the person to write that since he was the leader of the church at Jerusalem. So we get to our first main point about the book of James. And what is it? Is you need to learn how to stand with confidence. We're only going to look at one verse really quickly, and here it is. Just chapter 1, verse 1. This is the whole scripture today. I mean, it seems ridiculous to some people to stick on one scripture, but sometimes one verse is worth sticking with. So, King James says, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. And the Lexham English Bible says, James, a slave of God, which is actually a better translation, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, also a better translation, greetings. So, by the way, uh, there's only two of the New Testament writers that use the term slaves to refer to themselves without any qualifications. Now, Paul did call himself uh, a doulos or a slave, but then he would, he would say, Paul, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ and an apostle. He would always add that other thing, asserting his apostolic authority. But James and Jude, who both, by the way, are half-brothers of Jesus, they didn't, they didn't write and say, hey, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ and his half-brother, by the way. Which, quite frankly, if Jesus were my half-brother, I'd have probably bragged about it a little bit. But they didn't. His half-brothers both referred themselves as slave of Jesus Christ. And they're the only two Bible authors that refer to themselves that way without adding something to it. Also, I think you need to note that, that he is claiming that Jesus is God. Look at, that, uh, look at that verse again. He says, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you look at that phrase in, in the Greek, it's quite clear that you can make no mistake about it. He's saying Jesus is the same as God. There's an equal sign between Jesus, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, and God. He's putting it on the same level. Now, to Jews, that would have been blasphemy, calling anybody but God, God, and they wouldn't have believed Jesus was God. But to the Jewish Christians, he's saying, hey, Jesus is God. They are the same. And this is a very bold statement, particularly for the first book in the New Testament. Now, This is a pretty modest introduction. He says, I'm a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't mention anything about being the half-brother. He doesn't mention anything about being the head of the church at Jerusalem, which might have happened after this, but probably he already was serving in this capacity. By the way, if you look at the Greek, there's the Greek for James 1 and verse 1. That first word is Jacobos, which means Jacob. So his name was actually Jacob. Uh, However, when you see the name Jacob in Greek, we usually translate it in the scriptures as James. James is kind of the English form of the word Jacob. But uh, certainly he would have recognized the word Jacob more even than the word James. Some people have even suggested that King James asked that his name get in the scripture there, and so they translated Jacob as James. But it's actually pretty common uh, to call someone named Jacob as James. It's like a nickname. It's kind of like a lot of people call Robert Bob. I've never liked to be called Bob, but as long as you call me for dinner, I don't care what you call me. Uh, so, at, at any rate, uh, it's a common common name. Now, one thing is about James, he was a half-brother of the Lord, but he was a little slow uh, to believe. It says in John chapter 7, and verse 5, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. He grew up in the same house with Jesus. By the way, can you imagine that, growing up in the same house with Jesus, and your mother's constantly saying, Jacob or James, why can't you be more like your older brother? <laughs> He's perfect. Why can't you be more like him? That would have been a tough thing uh, to deal with. Uh, And yet uh, he had an encounter with the Lord that brought him to saving faith. In 1 Corinthians 15, which is the great resurrection chapter, Paul says that he appeared to James and then to the other apostles. So James is called an an apostle, by the way, uh, then to all the apostles. But he's called an apostle, which means that he saw the resurrected Lord and would be commissioned by him. But but it says here that he appeared to James first. He went to his half-brother first to make sure that he was on board. And then James then becomes the leader of the church of Jerusalem. So it was obviously a momentous time for James. Uh, Peter lists James, Peter, and John as those reported to be the pillars of, of the church. Now I want to look, and, and by the way, I'm not trying to advertise a, 
uh, tattoos here with this graphic, but I thought I just thought I love what it says there under doulos. It means not my own. See, a slave doesn't have anything of his own. So let's talk about what does it mean to be a slave for Christ. And there's four characteristics we'll go through very quickly. It means absolute obedience, absolute humility, absolute loyalty, and a certain pride of belonging to God. So let's look at those. First of all, a slave has absolute obedience. See, slaves knew no law but their master's word. It didn't matter what the Roman law said or any other. All that mattered was that they did what their master told them to do. But they had absolute obedience to that. They had no rights of their own. They don't go say, well, sorry, that violates my rights because the slave doesn't have rights. So he just does what he's told to do. And they realize that they are the absolute possession of their master and they're bound to give unquestioning obedience to our master. Now, just those points right there. Imagine what would happen if we treated our relationship with Jesus Christ like that. That the only thing that mattered to us is what the Bible said, the master's word. And what God told us as we studied His Word. That would, that would change our lives, wouldn't it? What, what about if we, we quit demanding our rights? It seems like everybody in our society wants to go out and have riots and, and commotion to demand their rights. But when I grew up, we were not taught our rights. We were taught our responsibilities and it was a different world. Listen, if we just focused on our responsibilities to the Master, it would change the world. And that we're the absolute possessions of our Master. Does that sound awful to you? Because I remember Paul saying that you are not yours. You have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and your spirit which are His. I belong to Jesus. Why? He paid for me. I am His slave. And I am bound to give Him unquestioning obedience. Now how did you get to be a slave? A lot of different ways. There was slavery due to debt. In fact, there's a story in 2 Kings 4.1. You may remember that there was a certain woman, it says, from the wives of the sons of the prophets that cried out to Elisha saying, My husband is dead. Now you know your servant was a fearer of the Lord, but a creditor came to take two of my children for himself as slaves. If you got into debt, your family could be taken away from you to pay the debt. Um, and then there's another reference to this kind of thing in Nehemiah chapter 5. But see, such slavery in Scripture was limited to six years. The seventh year you had to set them free. That was why they called it basically it was a year of liberty. And then every 50th year was a year of jubilee. But every seven years you had to set them free. You couldn't be a slave for long. So you had to pay your debt off uh, basically within that six years. That was in the, the Old Testament law. You could also voluntarily be a slave. Some people just didn't want to live in poverty. And they said, you know, I would rather, it's hard to find a job, I can't make a good living, I'll go serve that rich guy, I'll sell myself into slavery so I don't have poverty, and then I'll serve him, I'll live in a lot better place than I'm living now. And some of us may feel like we've done that with our employer. We took a job, now we have to do things on a time schedule, we don't have a lot of will of our own, we have to turn in deliverables, but that sure beats abject poverty. Being out on the street, not sleeping under a bridge at night. And so some of us have have basically kind of done this thing. And and you notice what it says here. He says, if an alien or a temporary resident who are with you prosper, but your countryman who is with him becomes poor and is sold to an alien, that is a a foreigner, he he says that his kinfolk can basically go redeem him, buy him out of that situation that he sold himself into. But there's also just love for your master. Now listen, this is an interesting passage of Scripture. If the slave explicitly says, I love my master. So in other words, you became a slave. While you're there, you got a wife, you got kids. It comes time. It's been six years. It's time for you to go free. Your debt is up. Master can't keep you anymore. But you want to stay there with your wife and kids who may not have the same expiration date that you had. And maybe you had a master you really liked because he treated you well. He took good care of you. He showed you kindness in turn for your respect. It says, if, if a slave says, I love my master, my wife, my children, I will no, not go out free. His master will present him to God and bring him to the door or to the doorpost, talking about the tabernacle and later the temple. And his master will pierce his ear with an awl. Now you may not have thought this, but pierced ears were originally a sign of slavery. And so he said, you'll pierce it through with an awl, and he will serve him how long? Forever. In other words, if you went through a ceremony, you were a slave for the rest of your life. This is called a bond slave. Someone who puts himself in bondage as a slave to someone because of a loving relationship. By the way, there is a Messianic psalm that has an interesting statement about Jesus. He says, his ear have they bored through with an awl. Talking about Jesus. What's that mean? Jesus died on the cross basically 
to forever become a servant to the Father, but also a servant to us because he provides for us. So he's our master, but he also is a servant. Now, if that sounds wrong to you, remember Mark 10, 44 and 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to live his life as a ransom for many. That's something else, isn't it? So, love for a master. So should we be slaves to Christ? Well, let's look at what we just heard. Jesus paid a debt that I couldn't pay, so I'm in debt to him. I, I, I was in abject spiritual poverty with absolutely nothing to offer Jesus, and he saved me out of that abject poverty and gave me every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, according to Ephesians 1. We have a master in Christ whom we have every reason to love because the Bible says he first loved us. So how can we not want to be obedient to a master like that? Now look at the second characteristic of a slave. He has absolute humility. This word doulos or bond slave is a word of someone not that goes around thinking of all his privileges but of his duties, not of his rights but of his responsibilities or his obligations. It's the word of someone who has lost everything in the service of God. Uh, I think a lot about how our pastor gave up 40 years of his life on the mission field. Uh, and, you know, now he's toward the, uh, you know, the end of his ministry. And he, he, there wasn't any big retirement plans for missionaries going to share Jesus with people. There's not like a secure 401k that's going to take care of him the, the rest of his life. And, you know, he didn't do it out of the the commercial advantages, in other words. He did it because he's a bond slave to the Lord Jesus Christ. See, a slave's only bragging rights are to say, hey, well, my master's better than yours. And as a Christian, guess what? Our master is better than anybody else's. Doesn't matter if you're living for fame, fortune. Our master's still better than that because we have a good master. We take pride in our master, but we're to have absolute humility in our relationship with him. Another thing slaves have to have is absolute loyalty. Uh, it's the word of somebody who has no self-interest. They do everything they do for the master. Personal gain and preference aren't in it. What they do, they do for God. And a slave only takes orders from one master. Somebody, other master out there told you to do something, and uh, you'd say, I'm sorry, I don't, I'm not your slave. I belong to someone else. I have to serve them, and I have to serve uh, their needs. And by the way, these are good guidelines for us, aren't they? Uh, we need to say there is no other master. Jesus even said you can't serve two masters, God and mammon. You've got to choose one because other, otherwise you'll love one and hate the other. or You'll cling to one while you're despising the other. And he says you, you only can have one master. And we don't serve. We serve for God's glory, not our own. And then this last one, this is a certain pride of belonging to Jesus. Uh, to be a slave used to be thought of as the worst possible thing in society. It's, it's as low as you could go. But to be a slave of Christ is not a title of dishonor. It's a title of honor. It's something we should bear uh, with great pride. Look at all the great people in the Old Testament called uh, servants or slaves. Basically, when they, uh, they're called servants in Hebrew, but later when the, the Hebrew is translated into Greek, they use this word doulos. Moses in 1 Kings uh, 8.53 and Daniel 9, Malachi 4.4 is called the servant or the slave of God. Joshua, it says, after these things, Joshua, son of Nun, servant of the Lord, died. He was 110 years old. Or Caleb, but my servant Caleb. Uh, became an, uh, uh, because another spirit was with him. Uh, so he's his servant of God. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Job, Isaiah, Amos, Zechariah, Jeremiah, all called the slaves of God. So it's a title of honor. And James thinks he's in good company with that. He, he's following a great succession of people. And the only greatness we can ever aspire to as Christians is to be a servant or slave of Jesus Christ. That's the greatest thing we can do. In fact, as Jesus even said, if you want to be first, put yourself last. If you want to be a master, first learn to be a servant. Learn to be a slave. So, so why is it that if this is a great title of honor that we sometimes cower from letting people know that we're the servants of the Most High God? We shouldn't. We should be proud of that. We should be upfront about that, that it doesn't bother us. So how, are, how is our servant attitude? So as we close, let's think about this. How do we handle the thumps of life, as Max Lucado put it? Do we respond by singing or by thudding? Uh, that tells a lot about our heart. For out of a man's heart, he, he speaks. 
And, and do we have these characteristics of a servant? Are we absolutely obedient to Christ? Are we absolutely humble in our relationship before Him? Or do we sometimes when we pray just tell Him what we want Him to do for us instead of asking Him what He wants us to do for Him? Uh, I'm guilty of that sometimes. Uh, am I absolutely uh, loyal to Him in all circumstances that I serve Him and not another master? And do I exalt and extol the virtues of our master to others? I think that's a good place for us. So there, there's a lot in James 1.1 1, 1 in there, just that one verse. I just think it's remarkable that the highest title of honor that James can give himself is a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Brother Dennis is going to come lead us in number 388. Would you stand as we sing? And... Um, I'd like for you today, rather than have an invitation, just asking you to come forward. I want to ask you, as you're singing, maybe you stop for a moment or do it as you're singing, but if you would pray a prayer to God and say, God, I'm honored to be a slave of Jesus Christ. Let me show you obedience and humility and loyalty, and I'm proud to be yours. Would you tell him that today as we sing? Brother